Good morning, everybody. I got to say, I have loved teaching this series. Um, I love sharing with all of you about the God that I love, the God that captured my heart, the God that is not a concept, an idea, but who lives and reveals himself. We began this series by talking about God's holiness. The idea is holy is that God is completely other than us. He's separate. He's pure. We can't approach him. And yet God approaches us through his grace. We went on to talk about God's love, how God's love is a delighting love. And last week, Jim talked about God's covenantal nature, that once he enters into a covenant with us, he will never, ever leave us. Today, we're going to talk about the jealousy of God. Now, I want you to think about this. If we were to do a street interview and to ask person after person, God is what? Describe God to me. Give me one quality. Not in a hundred years would anyone say, God is jealous. And this topic is going to be very easy for us to misunderstand and yet uh, incredibly important. I want you to look with me at Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. You shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. When it says his name is jealous, it's like saying this is his essence. This is not some periphery attribute. This is like core to his identity that he is jealous. And so this is a very important topic that we understand here today. I can't say this strongly enough that God is different than you think. No matter who you are, no matter how deep your relationship with God is, God is different than you think he is. I say that on the authority of Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways. Higher than your ways and my thoughts. Higher than your thoughts. This morning, we are deconstructing the house of our faith. Whatever your faith is, whatever you've built up in your understanding of what God is, what we need to do is we need to tear that down, deconstruct that, and look freshly at the Scripture and say, God, what do you really like? Are you all with me on this? We are so affected by our culture, and our culture does not know God. So would you bow your head in prayer with me? Great God, as we've already talked here this morning, you're a big, big God. And you're different than us, and you're different than how we would imagine you. And we are blind. We do not have the ability to reach up to you. You must. You must. We need you. More than any of us can imagine, we need you to reach down. And so we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart. Open the eyes of our heart, that we would know you, not in our mind, that we would know you in our heart, so that we could love you for who you are. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to look at this difficult topic, the jealousy of God, and I want to look at it through the lens of three different perspectives, okay? We're going to look at the jealousy of God through the Exodus story. From there, we're going to go forward to the New Testament 
And we're, we're going to look at Jesus' brother, James. We're going to look at his thoughts about the jealousy of God, and then we're going to look at Jesus' words themselves. Okay? So, Exodus. The Exodus story. Um, I, I came to learn the Exodus story. I came to learn about the Ten Commandments and Moses in, in a way that probably no one else did. Okay? It wasn't through reading the Bible. It wasn't through Sunday school or anything like that. I came to learn the Exodus story through this movie, uh, this Mel Brooks movie, The History of the World, uh, this blasphemous, actually, Mel Brooks movie. Uh, and Mel Brooks, Moses, walks out and he says, I bring you these 15, carrying these three tablets, and he drops one, and he says, these 10 commandments. And my buddies and I rolled in laughter for a few reasons. One, that's funny. But secondly, we had snuck into this movie theater in Akron, Ohio, with a bunch of beers stuffed in our shirts. And so as we popped beer after beer, this was before I became a Christian, just that we're all clear on that. Um, we popped beer after beer, and the, the theater was slanted. So we'd pop a beer, we'd drink it, and then we'd put it on the ground, and it would just roll. And it would, and then it'd get to the bottom, and it'd just crash. And we thought we were so cool. So that is how I learned the uh, Exodus story. Some of you may want to leave right now. That's okay. So in case you're not familiar with this, God rescued the people of Israel that were in bondage to Egypt. He sent a deliverer, Moses, to them. And he rescued them out of their bondage. And then on the way to the promised land, they had to stop and they needed to get to know God. And so the God of grace, the God who had already loved them, the God who had already rescued them, the God of grace needed to reveal that he was holy to them. And so there on the mountain, Moses is about to come down with the Ten Commandments and God sets the scene the way God sets the scene is the mountain where God is going to speak is full of fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and an earthquake. And the people, when they see the holiness of God, are like, hey, Moses, um, can you talk to God for us? Like, we don't really want to hear the voice of God. And Moses, as recorded in Hebrews 12, 21, said, um, this is kind of freaking me out. That's an exact quote, in case you're curious, out of Hebrews 12, 21. So let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you, brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. You know, you take a look at these commandments. Let's just think about the Ten Commandments for a minute. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Think about all the different ca candidates there were for command number one. I mean, if we were going to say, what's the most important thing, what would you say? I think I probably would have chosen one of the other commandments. It's like, well, okay, don't commit murder. That's a big one. That's huge, right? We should not do that. Or thou should not commit adultery. That's, that's pretty important, right? And in the mind of God, God says, no, here's the most important thing. Don't 
Don't love anything before me. Does that strike you? I mean, that strikes me. Do you know that the first four of the Ten Commandments are all about God, all about honoring him? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. Don't even take my name in vain and set one day aside to remember me. That's interesting, isn't it? It's all about God. Some scholars think the Ten Commandments kind of flow downhill, that if you love God well, if God's the center of your life, then you won't commit murder, you won't commit adultery, you won't lie, you won't be deceitful because you love God. In other words, if you love God, life flows the way it ought to flow. Verse 4, if we look at this again, you shall not make it for yourself a carved image. I wonder how many of us here today think idolatry is an ancient thing that doesn't go on anymore. Right? Isn't that what you would think? That idolatry is when you make this carved image and you bow down to that image. And, and as you think about that, in our elitist minds, in our postmodern minds, we're thinking about some ancient pagan somewhere and we're not thinking about us. We certainly aren't thinking that I could be an idolater. I've learned to look at this verse as a big clue about human nature. The reason this commandment says, don't make any idols, is that's our tendency. We have been wired to worship. Human beings are different than animals. We have been wired to worship. Something must capture our heart. And if it's not Jesus Christ, it will be something lesser. That's the way we're wired. There's a bunch of things I want you guys to know about idolatry. The first is idolatry is taking a good thing and making it a supreme thing. It's taking something that's good and making it number one in front of Jesus. I want you to understand that idolatry has the effect of blinding us. It blinds us to God and it blinds us to people. In the story, the uh, story of the Ten Commandments, it's interesting. The Egyptians worshipped all these gods, and one of them was the god of Ma'at, the god of beauty and order and justice. And so as the Egyptians were worshipping this god called Ma'at, they were throwing the Hebrew baby boys into the Nile River. Do you see how it blinds us? It blinds us to human beings. Pornography is the supreme example of this. When we take sex, a good thing that God created, and we make it number one, all kinds of evil flows into the world. So when God gives this commandment here in the Ten Commandments, it's not for an ancient people group, it's for us here today, and you'll become convinced of that in a few minutes. This to me is a big clue to human nature, to my nature, to me. And idolatry is costly. How many men like me have had the idol of achievement? And when achievement, which is a good thing, becomes an ultimate thing, which is idolatry, how many men have sacrificed their wives and their children on the altar of their achievement? Are you tracking with me now? Everyone get, get what I'm saying? It's costly. It blinds us, and it's costly. And anything can be an idol. Anything can be an idol. A relationship 
can, a good thing can become the ultimate thing. Sex, money, power, control, achievement, my shows. Staying connected on Facebook, a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. I have no time for Jesus. Well, why is that? Being liked, working out, being right, even being authentic when it becomes number one, when it takes the place that is sacred and left for God alone. Verse 5, let's look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So we've got to understand this. We've got to unpack this and understand what the sacred scripture, the word of God, means when it says that God is jealous, right? Is it saying, we have two options here. Is it saying that God is small and self-centered and envious and petty? Or is it saying that the way God loves us is different? And he must be number one because he alone is the best thing for our hearts. Okay, so we've looked at the Exodus story. Some of you, I wish you all saw someone just raise their hand. Because we know, some of us know, when anything but God becomes number one, how destructive it is to my identity, to my marriage, to my kids, to my friendships, to everything. So we've looked at Moses. Let's look at Nietzsche. That's right, Nietzsche. There are more idols in the world than there are realities. That's Nietzsche's way of saying anything can become the object of our worship. John Calvin, yes, we are bouncing all over the map here today. John Calvin said, from this we may gather that as man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. When I knocked down the idol through faith in Jesus, when I knocked down the huge, monstrous, ugly idol of self in my life, and I bowed my knee to King Jesus, guess what popped up in time? Another idol, a relationship became more important important to me than Jesus. And so God took care of that. And I walked further down the road and another idol popped up. So Calvin's right on. Because our hearts are wired to worship, the struggle will be between us and who has supreme allegiance in our hearts. Tim Keller, we continue to bounce everywhere. Tim Keller, I love this quote. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from those ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement but these same things that have assumed mythic 
proportions in our individual lives and in our society. These quotes are on the app, by the way, in case you want them. So we've looked at Moses. We've looked at Nietzsche. We've looked at John Calvin. We've looked at Tim Keller. Let's look at the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 3, put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. What? Do you see what he's saying? Some areas in our life, it's not just that they're bad or that they're harmful. Something happens in our heart where the good thing becomes the ultimate thing and the throne of God is replaced by whatever it is. In Romans chapter 1, Paul calls idolatry the root of all sin, of all human struggle. Okay, so that's the first lens, the Exodus story and the implications of that. Let's look at the second lens that we can examine the jealousy of God, and that is the man James. Now, I don't know how many of you know uh, much about James at all. James was Jesus' physical brother. James did not believe in Jesus, so to speak, until after Jesus rose again from the dead. He didn't believe in him. And James became one of the leading pastors of the church and just a fiery man. Have you guys ever known a pastor that when he would stand up to speak, he would just say things that would be like God just dropped a bomb on your head? You know what I'm talking about? Like I had a friend... uh, Pastor Mark, and every time Mark would speak, I would feel like, man, that was really awesome. And I'd also find myself saying, Mark, you can't say that. That's too extreme. That's James. James is about to say something very, very extreme. All right, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This sounds very shepherding to me, very pastoral. Hey, I want to help you. Are you having some relational conflict? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, this is interesting because the Christians were not murdering each other. Jesus said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder, but I say to you, that even to curse your brother in your heart is murder. And so James is picking up on what Jesus said. Now, I hope you follow what he's saying here. If you're having relational conflicts, it's because of your passions. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, I want to give you a little warning before we look at verse 4 here. There are things that the Scripture says that are very rich. How many of you have a shame button? You know what I mean? When we, your tendency is to throw yourself under the bus. You instinctively shame yourself. And I ask you that. Do not hit your shame button here. There's something very rich that James is about to say. Verse 4. You, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, follow my thinking here. 
To commit adultery, you've got to be what? Yeah, a person, yes. <laughs> that would be so true. Okay, so you've got to be a person. What else? Okay, but to just, just very simply, to, be, to commit adultery, you have to be married, right? Do you see what God is saying about his relationship with us? I don't know if you've ever thought this way. God regards the covenant relationship with you, the relationship with you as being a covenant of marriage. Just think about that. You know what this is saying right here? If you don't hit the shame button, God cares about your heart. God cares about what goes on in your heart. James is telling us that misplaced passions, disordered love, can be idolatry. And it affects human flourishing. We've got all these struggles. Why? Because we don't love Jesus supremely. So this is me and Jana, for those of you that don't know us. This is where we were last weekend, just so you know. We were at the beach when you guys were here. Um, I had to confess that. This is, uh, is my wife's birthday celebration, and so we're coming up on 30 years. Yeah. And uh, it didn't start out too well because of my idol. And so I remember sitting on the couch with her, and she asked me, would you rate our marriage on a scale of 1 to 10? I was very foolish, and I answered the question. So I'm just saying, if your wife ever asks you that, just like, no, what, what, you go first. So I... I didn't have that wisdom, so I, I, I naively walked into the trap. It was a trap. I said a seven. Talk about naive and just like, I thought things were good. And she said, I think our marriage is about a three. So if you can imagine a husband and wife sitting across the table from one another and talk about an idol blinding us, I could not see her. I could not see what my idol was doing because there on the table was this honking big idol called achievement. We even named it the mistress of ministry. And I hope you follow me that if you love Jesus supremely, you should be the best husband you can possibly be because the scripture exhorts us to that. Amen? This is all building up to what I wanted to say. Verse 5. James 4, 5. Do you suppose it says to no purpose that the scripture says he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You are not like puppy dogs and porpoises, as cute as they may be. God put a spirit in you, a way to commune with him. And I just want you to look at that again. God jealously yearns over your spirit. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to thrill you with who he is. He wants to be in a relationship when you begin to talk and when you begin to pray to God that he's just delighted to hear your voice. He jealously yearns for that kind of a relationship. So one of the things I want you to catch very clearly here is that God's jealousy is not this small, envious, petty thing. 
It is his, in the words of Francis Chan, it is his crazy love. He wants you to become a man of God, a woman of God. He wants to be your best friend, your counselor, your God, your Lord, your shepherd, your commander, the lover of your soul. He wants to be number one in your life. And I found that if we love God supremely, life just works. All right, we've looked at the words of James the madman. We've looked at Exodus. Let's look at Jesus himself. Now, remember I said that we've got to deconstruct our view of God, and it is with this. Jesus deconstructs our small view of God more than any other thing. This is very important that we don't miss this, because when I said two weeks ago, there is this mantra that people say that God loves unconditionally. And I think that's a dangerous term. God does love us more than we can ever dream of. But Jesus puts a fork in the road in the path of our life. He makes demands on us. Because his love is more than, oh, I just love you the way you are. He calls us to something great. And if we're idolaters, that will involve warfare. God competing for our heart. So, follow me just for a few minutes. If you remember the story of the rich young ruler, maybe you've not heard this, but this guy comes with the right question to the right person. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has this little discourse with them, probes around in his heart a little bit, and then he says, here's the deal. You need to get rid of all of your money and then follow me. And is that how a person gains eternal life? Absolutely not. Then what is he really saying? Jesus sees an idol in the man's heart. And he says, you can't just accept me. You've got to love me, but you can't love me because you love that thing, whatever that thing is, so much. So if you picture this, the door of eternal life is like this broad, broad, broad door. It's available to anyone, but it's also very short. You must bow. You can't enter. There's a girl that was involved in our church, not this church, a long time ago, and her name was Amy. And Amy came up to me after a talk that I had given, and she said, if what you just said was true, then I'm not a Christian because I don't love God the way that you've described. And I said, well, it's worth thinking about. I gave her some verses to consider. She came back two days later with a huge smile on her, on her face. And she said, I wasn't, but I am now because God dealt with the idol in her heart. Remember what Jesus said to the crowds of people? Unless you hate your mother and father, your brother and your sister, and even your own life, you can't follow me. Does that sound like this soft, unconditional love thing? 
That sounds like Jesus saying, this ain't going to work unless I'm number one. And the tendency of Americans is to have our closet full of idols and then sprinkle in a little Jesus on Sunday morning. And it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Guys, when I became a Christian, when I understood that the Son of God had taken on human flesh for me and had died on a cross... I bowed my knee and I said, I am yours. I have no idea what this means. I have no idea how to follow you, but I will follow you for the rest of my days. If God loved me like that, I've already wrecked my life at age 17. It's yours. Take my life. I think that's what salvation is. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is speaking to the church that is at Ephesus. This church is an incredible church that's had an unbelievable effect. And Jesus says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. So this church, this was in a time of great persecution against Christians, And so they had patient endurance. I mean, people are being put to death. And yet they're enduring. They're not compromising at all. They're toil. They're working hard. The church, not the pastor, the church is engaged in telling other people about Jesus. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Next verse. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Compliment, 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 compliment. But I have this against you. Just what would you feel if Jesus was standing here, not me, and he said to us as a collective community, as a church, he said, I have something against you. That would break my heart. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. The New American Standard translation says, you've left your first love. You've left your first love. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent, unless you do what I tell you to do, I'm going to send you to hell. That's not what this is saying. A lampstand is a, is a light that shines to the world. What he's saying is, if a church, no matter how big it gets, no matter how many good things it's doing, if a church doesn't have a bunch of people that flat out just love Jesus, then the light just doesn't shine very bright at all. Are y'all y'all with me on this? My life has been one big long lesson that is very simple. It's like when you love me and just walk with me, you're a really good husband. You're a really good dad. You're a really good friend. You're a really good pastor. But when I'm not first, things get really get messed up. Jesus wants to be our first love. 
I want to close with three quotes here. I want to close with us uh, remembering that the greatest illustration of the jealousy of God, his passionate desire to be first in our lives, is the cross of Christ. The suffering, bleeding, tortured figure, God on a stick, the blood of God running down out of the body of Jesus, as the book of Acts refers to this. The one sign, the great revelation of who God is, the ultimate picture, the one image that God wants to burn into our brain, this is what I am like. Let's look first at what Abraham Kuyper said. In the total expanse of human life, there is not a single square inch of which the Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, that is mine. When you understand that this planet is fallen and human beings are fallen, and when you look at the cross of Christ and you understand the jealous, fiery passion of God came and died on the cross to reclaim what is his. Every human being and every place in our hearts. Every place where I doubt and I worry and I strive and I build all these altars and idols and Jesus Christ says, that is mine. This is not a shaming statement. This is an awesome love, crazy love of God. Let's look at what Charles Stanley said. The Lordship of Christ liberates us. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? That if you say, I am your slave, Lord Jesus, then you will get liberty. It's the great paradox that Jesus spoke about. The Lordship of Christ liberates us to become the people we were created to be. If Christ is not master, then someone or something else will enslave us. Why? Because we're idolaters. It's our nature. It's in our blood. And let's close before we move into worship with the quote from C.S. Lewis. The more we get what we now call ourselves, the more we get ourselves out of the way and let him take us over the more truly ourselves we become does that resonate with your spirit he envies he jealously desires your spirit your heart that we could collectively be people that have been set free from our king people that Jesus people can look at us and see Jesus in us would you stand with me I don't know if you have an idol that you can recognize but here as we move into worship this is not about shame this is not about our failures 
This is about us gladly, freely coming to the cross, looking up at Jesus and saying, I recognize this idol in my life and I surrender it that you would more completely fill me. I would be yours because you've claimed me and you love me. Would you bow your head in worship? Great God of heaven, we thank you that you're not just a great God of heaven, but the God that came down to earth and pursued us. And Lord, I just have to admit, I don't get it. I do not get it. I can't comprehend that you want a relationship with me and each person in this room, this passionately, as if we matter, as if you think about us, as if you chase us. So I and we gladly surrender our idols to you and we worship you. How awesome. You're jealous for us. We want to love you in return. In the great name of Jesus, amen.